Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is an author, journalist and social commentator, Melanie Phillips. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello, thank you for so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's been a while in the making this interview. It's great to finally uh, get you on the show. For anyone who doesn't know who you are, uh, which is not many people these days, but there, there are some, I'm sure. Uh, tell everybody, who are you? How are you where you are? What has been an abridged version of your journey through life? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, uh, I am currently um, a columnist for the Times newspaper. Um, and uh, I write books, um, uh, and um, I do quite a lot of broadcasting and a certain amount of public speaking. And um, uh, I was known uh, many moons ago, probably before you even started to exist, because I'm so <laughs> very old. Um, I was known to be a Guardianista. I worked for The Guardian and The Observer for the best part of 20 years. And for the first uh, period of that time, um, I thought that I was one of them. And then um, I realized rather crashingly that I wasn't. Um, and from then on, it was sort of downhill all the way into a pit of infamy um, <laughs> in which I progressed to um, the Sunday Times, which was a kind of uh, convalescent home, um, and then the Daily Mail, which was a bit like going from a convalescent home to Mount Vesuvius in full eruption. Mm. <laughs> um, and then the lava washed me out of the Daily Mail, and I'm now uh, very happily ensconced at the Times, which is extremely civilized uh, as a newspaper. So I've had quite a journey, and my journey through newspapers reflects my journey politically. Um, to my former comrades on the left. Uh, not that I ever thought I was the left, I thought I was a liberal. I still think I'm a liberal. But in those days, when I worked for The Guardian, I thought that being a liberal and being left-wing were pretty well the same thing. And that was not least because everyone used to talk of themselves as the liberal left. And I thought being liberal was good, and being left was good, and that we were all marching under the same banner of believing in truth as opposed to lies, and justice as opposed to injustice, and fairness and equality, and the oppressed against the oppressor, and all those good things, and progress, and reason, rationality. And I still believe in all those things, but the break came when I came to understand or believe that my former comrades on the left were on the exactly other side of all those things. Well, you that started to use reason and logic. I did. And that, that did. was... It was a that. terrible shock <laughs> to everybody. Um, uh, and then I observed to my complete horror um, that, um, uh, and, and to begin with, my complete perplexity, that literally like that, uh, the first column I wrote, which offended against the dogma of the left, I was immediately ostracized. I immediately became something that was against the left and therefore had to be the right. And it took me a long time to put a lot of stuff together and a long time before I felt able to or ready to uh, leave what I considered to be my family, uh, my political family, but um, I did leave it. Um, and have basically fought them ever since. And in response, they never engage in the arguments with me. Instead, they label me 
uh, with increasingly uh, ferocious uh, labels in order to silence me. So to begin with, I, beca I, was, I became right-wing overnight, and then when I didn't stop, when I went further and further, issue by issue, down this terrible hill of infamy, um, I became far-left and then ultra-left and then um, fascist and then Nazi, which is great since I'm a Jew. Um, and then they discovered I was a Jew and I was the wrong kind of Jew because I supported Israel. So then I became the mad Likudnik warmongering Zionist Jew. And then Stroke when I Nazi. still kept going, yeah. I became deranged and insane. So then I became the deranged and insane warmongering Nazi uh, Zionist uh, fascist Jew. And then it becomes quite difficult to think what else they can throw at me. So that's basically the person you're interviewing. I and, thought you'd like to know. And uh, all those titles are actually great names for an Edinburgh show. Mm. <laughs> Bit of a mouthful, <laughs> yes. That would be well. It's a pleasure to have another deranged Nazi Jew on the show. We've got two of them now on one yeah. show, which is, uh, I'm sure, a rarity. Um, whenever we speak to people from around different political positions. My sense, or our sense to some extent now, is the kind of things that you talk about. The question I really want to ask you, if I dig really deep, is are we living through the last days of the Roman Empire? Is that what's happening here? In terms of the West and the collapse of, the potential collapse of a civilization? Is that where we are? It certainly is has Is that overstating the case, do you No, feel? no, no. I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> understating it, I think. Um, I've thought for literally many years that this is a civilization that's hurtling towards the edge of the precipice without even realizing there's a cliff. Um, it's just completely blind. Um, and I think that, um, uh, I think what's been happening, um, I would say since the Second World War, and we can talk about why I think that was a major watershed, I would go back further and say, I think that the First World War was also a major watershed. And I would go back even further and say the seeds of this were actually sown in the 18th century Enlightenment and have just unraveled over the time. But I would say that certainly in the last 50, 60, uh, uh, 70 years, um, uh, it's been uh, unraveling. And I would say it is a retreat from the, uh, or a, a repudiation uh, a, a loss of belief in uh, the fundamentals of Western modernity. I think that a profound demoralization set in as a result of the Holocaust and the Second World War, which occurred in the very crucible, the very heartland of high Western culture. Germany was, you know, a country which thought of itself as the, the sort of quintessence of reason and progress and high culture. You know, they all loved Goethe and Schiller and, and Beethoven. And, you know, they, they played um, people to the gas chambers to the tunes of Mozart. Okay, so the West knew that. And the West, I think, then was totally demoralized. If we could do that, if that's what reason has done, we've had it with reason. And we've had it with the nation state, because they believed the story that they told themselves in the West was that Hitler was a nationalist. And I think that was also a misunderstanding because Hitler wasn't a nationalist. Hitler despised people who believed in the nation. He thought they were petty and silly and ridiculous. He was an imperialist. He believed that he was put on earth to recreate the Holy Roman Empire. 
Which so meant, he was a Remainer. Which <laughs> meant, <laughs> well, <laughs> let's 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 not quite go there. Let's not quite go there. But he certainly wanted to invade people. And you know, if Britain hadn't been nationalist mm. and you know so really full of what it stood for. We're both Remainers, by no, the way. way yes. said, well, we both voted <laughs> Remain. Right, Let me not so. even, <laughs> even insinuate that you have anything to do with, 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 with Hitler. Yeah. But anyway, I think that that sort of set in a kind of demoralization which made the sort of governing bodies of the West, the political and intellectual bodies that control our culture, yeah. very vulnerable to a whole series of anti-Western, nihilistic, destructive ideas, which is where we are now. So you've, you've mentioned these nihilistic, destructive ideas. I mean, uh, it's very, very dark terms that you're using. Could you pinpoint a couple of them that you think are particularly destructive? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, um, uh, the destruction of the traditional family and the destruction of the concept of education. Those two things, education and the family, I think are what underpin a society. They give a society its shape. And... Um, I believe that the traditional family of a mother and a father bringing up their children, while not ideal in every respect and in every circumstance for sure, is nevertheless, broadly speaking, the best way to produce emotionally healthy individuals who will go on and, you know, do well in life. Mm. And we kind of got rid of all that because we thought it was entirely wrong to have a hierarchy of values, entirely wrong to have a hierarchy of family or any other kind of cultural background, because that meant that people who weren't from that background might feel or would feel disadvantaged, put down and so on. So we, we had a level playing field, so no family background could be privileged. And so the result, I think, has been misery for unquantifiable numbers of children and women in whose name it was done. So that's the first thing. The second thing was education. And that was where I first came to grief at The Guardian, the second column I wrote saying, Maybe something's going wrong with education that's not entirely the fault of Mrs. Thatcher. And then the world fell on me because, of course, every bad thing was the fault of Mrs. Thatcher. And the education world was entirely blameless, as you know, as a former teacher. Mm. Um, so, but I charted over those years in the late 80s, I charted in my journalism what I saw was going on in education, which I, I sort of sat through all the debates, and it was mainly the educational hierarchy in universities which was dictating this. And basically the, the orthodoxy that came out, which you could not challenge, was that the very idea of education as a means of transmitting a culture down through the generations was inherently illegitimate in the West, because Western culture was inherently racist and colonialist. So you must not transfer, transmit it down. In a, in, instead, all these ideas that went back to Rousseau um, and, you know, let a child be free and the child brings to the educational experience uh, what is infinitely superior to anything the adult world can impose upon it. So you got rid of the idea of structures and you let the child find its own way in the world. And the teacher became a facilitator. This may, <laughs> yes. have, this may have changed by the time you, you were a teacher, I don't know. But Probably got worse. Yeah, it's got worse. So the teacher had a backseat. Hmm. The teacher would not impart the teacher's own knowledge. Heaven forbid it should, the teacher should direct a child anywhere. The teacher would just stand back while the children basically were left, in my view, to stumble through a world without a map. 
And I thought that was just appalling. And I watched children being told that they could read at the age of seven. Their parents were told they could read and they couldn't read. They were guessing words. Why were they being taught, not taught to read? Because teaching a child to read involved a structure, and a structure involved progress at different levels. And that meant that some children would be faster at learning to read than other children. And that meant that the children who were slower at learning to read would have an identity problem for the rest of their lives and would be full of self-doubt. So you'd have no structure. So no child was taught to read. It sounds ludicrous. That's what happened, and I read book after book theorizing why this was the way forward. So um, I watched the education system be destroyed as a system of transmitting a culture, and it became something quite different, it became rather confused. And over the years, subsequently, it's gone back and forward a bit. Mm. There's, it's been pulled back, it's been pulled forward again, so it's a bit of a mess. And to be, to be frank, I haven't followed it in that detail for some years, but that's what I wrote then. And so I thought, then, and I still think, those two things going down sort of laid the groundwork. And then you had this whole business of following on from that. I mean, these things are all based on the idea that the individual was supreme. By the individual being supreme, what was meant was that what the individual subjectively thought must take precedence over any imposed authority from outside. What I believe to be right for me was right. And nobody could tell me that there was anything wrong in it. And that went not just for the educational system, not just for family backgrounds, it went for cultures. So heaven forbid, suddenly, that the West could say to itself, we're better than other cultures. So that, what did that mean? What did that mean? According to the people who produced this doctrine, it meant that you have the brotherhood of man. It meant that because the West would no longer look down on others, therefore, Everybody will be so happily, uh, uh, so happily uh, involved in in nurturing each other in a kind of brotherhood of man. We're all friends and even Stevens together. And they uh, haven't met any there Russians. Be, <laughs> there, there will be no prejudice. Yeah. Prejudice and bigotry be yeah. excised from the human heart, yeah. and there will no longer be war. Yeah. But what it also meant was rather important that a liberal society could not say that it was better than any mm. other. So we couldn't say that we stand for you know, the cardinal tenets of a liberal society, you know, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of religion, uh, equality between men and women, and all, all the other stuff. We couldn't say that was better than any other. So this is, this is the road to disaster. If a society can no longer assert that it believes in its values, then it's over. So. And, the, and then the, all these things led to other stuff, um, uh, and now we've, you know, we, we're in a sort of this, you know, the identity politics, a bit like the French Revolution onwards. In all revolutions, eat their own. So identity politics and intersectionality means that everyone's eating each other. So you know, first of all, we had you know the gay rights movement, and then we had transgender, and now gay is eating transgender, and transgender is eating gay, and it's, it's like what? So we've, we, we're, we're descending all the time into ever more widening circles of absurdity um, and, I think, damage and, and destruction. So I've been writing about this for you know, decades. 
which is why it's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah. And I was going to, I don't know if you're familiar with Titania McGrath, this Twitter. I am. Uh, Andrew, who's a good friend of ours, he's the man behind that. And he paraphrased Ben Shapiro's quote, which is facts don't care about your feelings into feelings don't care about your facts. That's right. And this is what you're really talking mm. about, yes. this era of subjectivity. It, it, this Essentially, what you're talking about is the erosion of the concept of truth. That's correct. The erosion of the idea that there is a truth correct. that can be measured, that can be observed, that can be elucidated through debate and discussion. That's right. And that is the road to ruin, surely, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, without truth, you can't have reason. Hmm. And without reason, you can't have modernity and the West. And, you know, here we have this tremendous paradox that at a time when um, we pride ourselves you know, on as, as, a, as a society, a Western society, um, that this is the era of supreme rationality and reason. So we're so reasonable, we're so rational, we've done without religion, you know, because we think that religion is superstition, it's bunk. Um, and we're, you know, this is because we, we are rational people, we believe in the intellect, and you know, we, we think, and yet we've abolished the idea of objective truth, without which there's no rationality. So these things don't make sense at all. They don't add up uh, for a, you know not for a second, and that is not acknowledged either. Because the other thing is that all these doctrines I've been talking about, because they are associated so strongly with this idea that this is the way we repair the world. We have been through this cataclysm of the Holocaust, First World War, Holocaust, war, um, communism, mass murder. Right, we've got to avoid all that. So we have to eradicate war. We have to eradicate prejudice from the human heart. We must go forward as a global community of the brotherhood of men and women. Fine. So who could possibly object? Because this agenda of all these ideologies that are to do with the perfection of the world if anyone objects, they are not just wrong, they are must be bad people because they're objecting to the perfection of the world. There can be no deviation from them, therefore. So again, the irony is that in an era which is so supposedly rational that it's done away with um, uh, obscurantist religious belief, this is a religious belief. It has all the appurtenances, not just of religious belief, but of what I would call um, medieval apocalyptic Christian belief. When you know you had uh, dogma that couldn't orthodoxies that couldn't be gainsaid, you had heresy trials, you had heretics, you had dissidents, you had inquisitions. And then you had mass burnings, so we don't have mass burnings anymore. But instead, we destroy people's reputations and their professional careers. Same thing. We cannot abide, as a society, we've created ideologies which cannot be gainsaid. And anyone who does gainsay them is consigned to various circles of hell. And so how do we push back against this movement? Because you're insinuating that it is a battle. Brexit! <laughs> <laughs> and the B word happens again, ladies and gentlemen. We're back where we started. <laughs> is it really Brexit, do you think? Well, this is complicated and it sounds absurd to say Brexit because, you know, what's Brexit got to do with all this? But I believe that all the time I was writing about all this stuff, I was getting a lot of support from the public, all of whom uh, I could see, you know, they were, they were in hiding. They were all being told that the beliefs they had, uh, which contradicted all these ideologies, were 
not just wrong, but despicable. They were despicable people. And then um, Brexit happened, and I thought, ah, 17.3 million people actually think like me. Because not that they think like they thought like me in every one of these issues, but broadly, the underlying assumption of what I would call the intellectual political establishment, which was to do with this business of, you know, the nation is basically a bad thing and um, uh, uh, um, the, the, the idea of a culture being better than any other is a bad thing and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that anyone who objects to that is an imbecile and bigoted and a little Englander what was David Cameron's famous phrase, you know, um, fruitcakes, uh, fruit cakes, closet, closet loonies, racist. closet yeah. racists. Mm. Um, all those people said, you know what? We have a vote now to show that that's not true because we want our country. We want to govern our country as an independent nation because we believe in democracy and we believe in governing our country and we want to be able to have our own culture expressed through our own laws made by our own democratically elected parliament which can't be overturned by foreign a foreign court. Now, I believe that that was not in the front of people's minds, but that's basically what they were on about. And then, so Brexit happened. And I thought, when I woke up, I had two, that morning, I had two thoughts. One is that, huh, well, what do you know? Possibly Britain might survive after all. And my second thought was, nah, <laughs> it'll never be allowed. This will be a fight to the death. That was my second thought. And then, I don't want to give you a, a seizure, but then the election of President Trump happened. And I thought, the second shoe has dropped. Because whatever you think about President Trump as a person, and I have a number of reservations about him, to put it mildly, <laughs> what he stood for was, again, the American people saying, we don't want what we are being told we have to have, a borderless country. We want our country. We want to be able to say that America stands for something which we will defend and we'll, we'll welcome people in, but we have to be a country under the law. We cannot have this mass law-breaking on the basis that there shouldn't be any border laws because we're all a brotherhood of man. Mm. And they were called racist and red, rednecks and bigots, and they elected their guy. And then in Europe, the entire political establishment has agreed for decades that the nation is the source of everything that went wrong in Europe the entire establishment. And so the people of Europe were told, you want to have your own culture? That's, that's, that's the road to Nazism. No, you will have what we will give you. And guess what? They're voting for populist parties, some of which in my view are simply parties which are saying, you know what, we just want to have our own culture back. And some of them are obnoxious. They are racist. They come from, you know, they have Nazi or fascist pasts. Um, and it's a mess. But it's because the people have no alternative. So you have those three things happening, which I believe signify a great movement of the people. Not unifiedly, by no means unifiedly. On the contrary, there are these great fights going on, as here over Brexit, blah, 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 Trump, totally divisive. But it's a fight now that wasn't in existence before. There is a fight on between two sides. Uh, one is basically pro the uh, basic ideas of the West and the other is not. 
that's an exaggeration. And there are people who want a bit of both. And I don't want to imply that people are, you know, um, totally on one side or totally on the other side. But that's broadly how I see it. So there is a kind of chink of light, except that battle is joined. And who knows how it's going to end? And it could become extremely messy and even could become violent. No, but messy in the sense of violent. Mm. Oh, really? It's already violent in, in parts mm. uh, in, on the continent of Europe already. Mm. Um, and I, my fear is that that's going to get worse because this, this, this great civilizational division, which has now opened up, um, it's very hard to see how it can be, how it can be joined up. It, it is a proper division between different ways of looking at the world. I see a lot in what you're, what you're saying, particularly on the national identity sense, because one of the things that, you know, I'm originally from Russia, but I've lived here for a long time, so I can kind of see things from both perspectives. One of the things I always find quite shocking about s some British people is the level of embarrassment they have about their own national identity. They've oh. imbibed this mm. idea that this country mm. is somehow mm -hmm. evil and bad and and they have to be embarrassed for being British. They have to apologize in a very British way for being British. And I've always found that a very strange thing for a nation to embrace. Well, you know, the joke, you must know the joke about, you know, if, if you're British and uh, someone treads on your foot, you say, I'm so sorry. Mm. I mean, that's what the British do. We apologize. Mm. Um, but I think the whole, of, the whole of the West has been imbued by this idea that we have kind of, we've been born into original sin, the original sin of colonialism, the original sin of empire, the original sin of slavery, as if we invented it all, um, you know. Uh, uh, and, it, and in a way, that's see one of my main quarrels with the left is that they are so racist. They they insist on perceiving the world through the prism of their own uh, cultural beliefs. So um, uh, uh, this idea of 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 you know being being um, the originators of things like slavery, well, it's, it's simply not true. Um, and also this idea that everyone in the world is. Um, basically reasonable uh, because <laughs> we are so reasonable because we are the acme of reason um, and it's like an imposition so you know we, we collectively in the West don't even try to understand cultures which are completely different from ours we will not have it they're, they're different they have to be the same as us we have to see them through the prism of us because we carry everything before us to me I, f I find that so at the very least patronizing, but I believe it to be racist, fundamentally racist. That uh, It's not that, that, we're, that we in the West think we're so much better than everybody else. We think that nobody else can be any different from us. This is not possible because we are just, you know, what we stand for is self-evidently wonderful. And do you not think as well, and I think you touched on it, we, it's sort of the culture of individualism versus a culture of the community, because the liberals are hyper-individualistic. If you, even, yes. you look at identity politics, it's about separating people. And, you know, you often say people who vote to remain, I could go and live and work in 27 other countries around the world. Most people don't want that. Most people just want to stay and live and work within their own communities. A yes. certain number of people do, but the majority of people do not want it. I couldn't agree with you more. People, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of almost a universal condition. People need to feel that they belong. 
they need to feel rooted, and um, uh, they want to feel rooted. They they want to feel that they have can have families in safety, and that they have. Then uh, they feel they want to feel rooted in a community, and then the larger community, which is a nation, in which they make common cause with others, um, so that they feel safe. They 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 identify. They they belong. Now there's a whole bunch of people who I think. Um, have have grown up in recent decades who are who, who don't live like that. They their lives are um, much more internationalist, and they tend to be people who have higher education and very very good jobs, and they work for multinational companies or they work in multinational arena, um, and they travel a very great deal and they believe themselves to be citizens of the world because they don't have an allegiance to a locality. Why should they? They don't need it. Whereas everybody else does need it. And they look down on the people who need it and they consider that to be racist. Well, it's not racist. It's just sort of human nature uh, to be like that. Um, so um, uh, I think that does explain quite a lot of the division, unfortunately. But again, it's it's a very unpleasant attitude that, you know, Anyone who's not like me, says this upper class, mm. is an inferior being. They're racist, they're bigots, they're rednecks, they're imbeciles. Excuse me? And it's also as well, that sort of hyper-liberalism, that individualism, which I'm, I'm admit I'm that type of person. I'm very, I see, that's how I see myself, whatever else. It doesn't make you happy. The connections that actually no. make you happy are the connections with your friends, your family, the people that you surround yourself with, the comfort you take from seeing your family. It's not really in achievements or traveling around the world. I mean, it looks great on Facebook, but that's about it. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of unhappiness around um, uh, because um, I think, again, we've told ourselves collectively um, to believe in a chimera which is happy you know happiness is the is the aim um, everything is to make us happy and the more we try and make ourselves happy the unhappy we become because um, I believe there are, there's something that's that's more important to us than happiness more fundamental uh, which sounds pompous but I believe it to be true which is a meaning to life. Mm. And if you have no meaning to your life, if you believe, you know, you're a random purposeless atom, uh, you know, sort of accidental combination of synapses which happens to be whirling around at this particular point in time, and your only function in life is to sort of find stuff to have and possess and make yourself happy, it's all pointless. And so you don't become happy at all. And it, it sounds awful but to say this, but, you know, happy, ha true happiness often, often comes from... from um, uh, it sounds so pious to say this, but happiness comes from other people. It comes from, you know, being nice to and doing good to other people and looking out for other people before yourself. And we're living in such a virtue signaling world where we're all sort of, you know, wearing our, our, our moral uh, virtue on our sleeves, but it's all, it's all meaningless. It's all stuff that doesn't actually concern us. It doesn't give us, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't require anything from us necessarily. Um, and it's the people who don't go around wearing it on their sleeve, but just get on with life by looking after each other and putting others first, really putting others first. Um, that's where I think a much greater sense of purpose in life and a much greater sense of satisfaction and ability to accept stuff as it is, um, which is, I think, the source of tranquility, which a lot of people 
just don't have. They don't have tranquility. And ironically, what you're saying is tied into Judeo Judeo-Christian values. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> He's prepared I, well. For <laughs> I happen to believe it's quite important. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I mean, this is the irony um, uh, that um, the things that we, as a secular society, tell ourselves that we value, um, like um, putting others first, conscience and compassion. Um, uh, and fairness, and justice, and truth. We pay lip service to all these things, and we tell ourselves that it's only because we've got rid of religion that we have all these things, and that people who are religious want to reverse all that. They want to put us all in chains, and they're obscurantists. They don't have reason. And this is so completely the opposite of the truth, uh, because if I want to give my liberal friends total apoplexy, um, I say what I believe to be the case, that um, uh, reason and compassion uh, both were given to us in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, I'm a Jew. Um, and that that was disseminated through the West through Christianity. Um, until the Hebrew Bible came along, we didn't have a rational universe. I mean, the Hebrew Bible is predicated on the idea that there is a purpose to the universe, um, that it, there was an intelligent creator and that therefore there are natural laws which can be interrogated by people we call scientists. That was the beginning of science in the West. Um, it's also had the revolutionary idea of a linear narrative of history, as opposed to the world going round and round in circles. Hence the West has progress. Hence the West has science. Hence the West has reason. Without the Hebrew Bible and the Christianity that gave it expression in the West, we wouldn't have those things. The West wouldn't be the West. My liberal friends don't like me saying that. <laughs> <laughs> have an absolute fit. They start talking about the Greeks. Well, I mean, you know, Greeks were great guys. <laughs> um, they did a lot, you know. What did the Romans ever do for us? But anyway, the Greeks did a lot. Fine. But, you know, so getting rid of Judeo-Christian stuff is not getting rid of obscurantism and rubbish and imbecility. It's inviting it in. Well, whether you believe in God or not, you, you can't not acknowledge that our civilization is based on those values of Judeo-Christian. People do deny I, it. I know, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. What, you, can, you can not be a religious person yes, yourself, as I am not. Absolutely. And not, Absolutely. But, but the truth is still the truth. Precisely. But well, this is problematic now, of course. It's very problematic. Yes. People, don't, people cannot, cannot um, accept what you just said. Mm. You know, if, if you don't believe in God, then it's all rubbish. And you can't sort of not believe, but realize that that's what lies underneath the things that we value, as you've just said. I mean, it's, and is that because it's exclusionary to other religious groups? Or what is the logic behind not acknowledging mm, this kind of fundamental? No, I think it's uh, that we've made a god of materialism, that we have told ourselves that what we see is all there is. Um, that what it, you know, that the, the, only the things that have a corporeal existence are real. That everything else is a fiction. The flying spaghetti monster, as Professor Dawkins once yes. put it. Mm. Um, but when you look at a lot of science, I mean, I'm not a scientist, and I'm open to the accusation that you know I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not a scientist. Um, but as I've been given to understand by scientists, who I do respect very much. Um, a lot of physics in particular and other sorts of science, they are a kind of 
you know, there is the, the idea that there is stuff that actually proves it all isn't the way science works. It works through hypothesis and falsification and challenge and so on. And a lot of the physics that has emerged in recent years is, you could say, a species of faith because it is a leap. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hypothesis. Um, uh, so the distinction between faith and science, I think, is a false one. I think that a particular kind of faith gave rise to science, and science, in certain respects, has come in recent years to believe that there is something, that, that there is a, a, an element to existence which science not only doesn't yet have the ability to fathom out, but will never fathom out. Now, I'm not saying this, what I'm hearing scientists say. Um, well, the conspiracy theorists on the internet are going to be happy. The Jews are behind it all after all. <laughs> yeah. Hi guys, uh, we're very excited to announce at Trigonometry that we've got a new sponsor. Now, some of you might be wondering where Constant is. Uh, very sadly, he has unfortunately been deported. Um, Brexit means Brexit. No, I'm joking. He obviously hasn't been deported. He's been sent to the USA to help out with a trial. Now, thanks to our friends at Beer52.com, you get the opportunity to sample eight beers absolutely free. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash trigger and pay £4.95 for postage and packaging and it's all yours. So that's the word beer followed by the numbers 5 and 2.com forward slash trigger. Beer52 are global pioneers when it comes to beer. They travel the world tasting and sampling the best beers small batch breweries have to offer. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Norway, Finland, and California, which isn't a country. The beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom, so you can leave anytime you want. All you have to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash trigger to claim your eight free beers. Plus, if you mention the show, you will get an extra two free beers, which means you'll be able to get drunk on your own watching trigonometry like an absolute legend. So all you have to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash trigger. Speaking of the Jews, we haven't pissed off enough people, so let's talk about Israel, uh, because you you have some pretty um, strong views. I, I heard a, a number of talks that you gave on the subject, and it's something that I, I think it's probably fair to say we don't really know much about. No, um, doesn't stop me from tweeting. <laughs> typical liberal millennial is what yeah. you are. Um, but there is this... Um, it's very difficult to talk about it, especially if you don't know anything about it. But the fundamental narrative about Israel, essentially, is that as a compensation for the Holocaust, the Jews were given a piece of someone else's land in the Middle East where they've settled. And now there is a battle over that piece of land because of that original sin, if you like, which is uh, a viewpoint that, frankly, uh, up until I started listening to some of your, t your talks, was unshakable in my really? understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't know, I honestly don't yeah, know yeah, enough yeah. about that, it. That's yeah. the, the default narrative. Yeah. yeah. So, is in what way is that not the case, Melanie? Every single thing that you've just said is untrue. Mm -hmm. oh, most of your conversations, man. <laughs> <laughs> That'll make him happy. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a big subject. But um, the idea that um, the Jews 
had no connection to the land of Israel until um, a guilt-ridden West uh, took them out as a remnant of the Holocaust and stuck them into someone else's country, is uh, the opposite of the truth. So what is the truth? The Jews are the only people for whom the land of Israel was ever their national kingdom, hundreds and hundreds of years before Islam was even invented and before the Arabs invaded. Um, the Jews uh, were the original nation, the original nation upon which America and Britain, in a kind of mystical fashion in Britain, modeled themselves. Why do I say that? They were a nation because they were a people uh, in a particular area of land which they governed according to laws they made and which they defended. Now, um, they were... Uh, a nation for several hundred years under various kings. Um, and then uh, they were uh, basically kicked out and they, then they returned, then they kicked out again. Um, and then the, that land of Israel was occupied by vast numbers of different civilizations. Um, the Romans, uh, uh, the Assyrians, um, uh, uh, the uh, Arabs, uh, various various sorts of Muslims, um, Christians, Crusaders, um, and for a long period the Ottoman Turks, who were Muslim but not Arab. Mm. Um, and then we get to the turn of the last century, and there grew up in Britain as a result of mainly as a result of evangelical Christianity a movement to return the Jews to their ancestral homeland. Um, and these people were called Christian Zionists. And the kind of apogee of Christian Zionism in political terms was the Balfour Declaration in 1917. It was a cabinet which was dominated by Christian Zionists. And they believed that it was um, uh, their duty to help the Jews return to res restore their ancient homeland. Um, long story short, as you will know, after the First World War, the entire Middle East was carved up mm. between mm. Britain and France, um, uh, which, you know, in itself was a questionable uh, activity. And they created Makes for various... nice straight lines on the map, <laughs> doesn't it? Well, well yes, uh, slightly uh, more complicated than straight lines. But anyway, so, you know, some of these uh, countries that they created, you know, you could say that's very questionable. But basically, the precursor of the United Nations, which was then the League of Nations, yeah. in the 1920s decided that um, as a matter of international treaty obligation, um, Britain would be given custodianship of what was then called Palestine, yeah. a name given to it insultingly by the Romans in order to erase its Jewish identity. Um, the British would be given cust custodianship of Palestine called the Mandate, under which Britain would be under a binding treaty obligation to return the Jews to their ancestral homeland to recreate it. Now, what was Palestine at the time? Well, a bit of it, a very large chunk of it, was promptly given away to the Arabs by Winston Churchill to become Transjordan, which is now Jordan. So what did that leave as the territory within which Britain had a binding duty undertaken by the world body of the time to return the Jews as a matter of historic right. What was that territory? It is what is now Israel, what is called the West Bank and Gaza. That is a territory to which the Jews alone were given the right to return because they alone had ruled it 
terms which have never been abrogated, even though the League of Nations is no more, it gave rise to the United Nations, but the United Nations took on, in its charter, it took on all the obligations of its predecessor unless they were specifically abrogated. Those terms have never been abrogated. So what then happened was, although the Arabs at the time, around 1917, 1918, uh, King Faisal notably, and one or two others, they said, Welcome, we welcome back the Jews to their ancestral homeland. They used this term because it was in, in their own religion. They knew this was a Jewish homeland. And then a lot of stuff happened. Basically, the British, having undertaken in the first place uh, this duty to settle the Jews in their ancestral homeland, um, the, Jew, the, the, the British colonial uh, office at the time and the colonial administrators who were put into um, uh, Palestine to administer this mandate did everything they could to stop it. And they, among other things, brought in a, an Islamic firebrand. This was at the time when Islamism, as we know it, political Islam, was growing. It was sort of invented after the First World War. And they brought in, the British brought in a particular Islamic firebrand called Haj Amin al-Husseini as the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And he incited, he was brought in to incite revolt, and he did. There were then pogroms after pogroms after pogroms of the returning Jews. Um, and uh, the thing then blew up into a sort of three-sided war. Jews and Arabs and British, or basically at various times, all fighting each other. Scroll on, um, the British threw in the towel, gave it over to the United Nations. The United Nations, Britain, had, Britain by this time had reneged on its obligation to settle the Jews in the land. Britain had decided the only way to solve this was to give a portion of this land to the Arabs in order to shut them up and stop them from fighting. And in accordance with that, the British closed the gates of Palestine at the time when the Jews were starting to be exterminated in Europe. That's what happened. And then the United Nations took over, the war finished, the United Nations took over. The United Nations said, just like Britain had said, right, two states, two-state solution, one for Jews, one for the Arabs. And just as with every, on every occasion since then, the Jews said, what? You're going to take this away from us? Fine. Fine. Give us anything. Anything. Because we're desperate. And the Arabs said, what? Jews? Here? Never. And they invaded, uh, or they went to war against the Jewish homeland. There was a, what was called the War of Independence, which amazingly the Jews won against all the odds. Subsequently, there have been, I've forgotten how many, two, three, four offers of a state of Palestine to the Arabs, which have been made by Israel. At every occasion, the Arabs have refused and have gone to war or have stepped up terrorist activity against Israelis. Now, before we go any further into that part of it, I just want to come back to this homeland idea, this idea that many, many centuries ago, a certain, if we strip away the identities and we just go, many, many moons ago, a certain group of people had a kingdom in this area. And after that, there've been 10 civilizations or 15 civilizations that have come and lived in this land. And now, for some reason, it's, it's kind of, I mean, isn't it a bit like me going, well, I used to, you know, I grew up in this flat mm -hmm. in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And now I want to be resettled there. Yeah. And all the neighbors have agreed to mm -hmm. kick out 
th that guy who lives there now mm -hmm. and put me in that flat instead? Yeah, Is it not a bit like well, that? Well, no, it's not like that. First of all, the Jews never left the land. They were always coming back to it, um, even under occupation. There was always a Jewish presence in the land, and from the mid-19th century onwards, there was a Jewish majority in Jerusalem. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing was that the land at the time of the mandate was very sparsely populated. The people who were there were mainly nomadic Arabs, but they didn't have an identity. They were, they considered themselves to be part of Syria, which was created, um, or Bedouin. They were, they, there was no such thing as Palestinians. Palestinians were the Jews. Um, but there were people who lived there. There were point. people who lived there, yes. Right. And then because the Jews started coming back, um, Arabs, started, Arabs and others started pouring in from neighboring Arab lands. And the British uh, then let, let them come in, even though they were, many of them, illegal immigrants. But they let them come in because they wanted to stop a Jewish homeland. So it's not a question of kicking people out. Mm. Um, it's a, it's, uh, it's, and it's not a question of, you know, people who had some sort of mystical attachment to some country. You're talking about the Jewish people who have been persecuted in virtually every country in which they've settled. No country ever has ever wanted them, apart from India and China, which have never had a problem with their Jewish populations. But in Europe, mm. no way. Nobody wanted them. Um, and it was in respect of that, as well as the fact that um, uh, they were the original nation and have always wanted to go back, um, that um, they were considered to have the right to go back. Um, so, so is this kind of perpetual persecution what I, I'm just trying to get this logically clear? Perpetual persecution of, of Jews in oh, Europe. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that what uniquely in the history of humanity gives Jews the right to resettle a land in which they didn't have that much of a presence? No, for, no, it for was centuries. their country. But a long time ago. Oh, okay. So why do people think that if they think that it was the Palestinians' country a long time ago, that's that means that they should have it. But they were living there in but the 19th weren't. century. But they weren't. There was no such thing as the Palestinians. Mm. There was no such thing as the Palestinian people. There was no Palestinian people until it was invented in the mid-1960s. Well, there, there was these nomadic Arabs who lived there. Yeah, but right? they didn't want a country of their own. The Jews were a nation. They had a country of their own. Mm. And it mm. was taken away from them. And then they were persecuted around the world. Mm. And so it seemed only decent and fair that they should have it back. And a lot of people at the time thought that was absolutely fine. But it was, there was a, a resistance whipped up, which was basically a religious resistance, in my view, um, and remains basically a religious resistance. Um, because if you look at the Arab world, uh, the Muslim world, unfortunately, and you look at the Palestinian Arabs and what they are producing uh, day by day in terms of what they teach their children and the materials that they put out, it's, it's not... It's not really accurate just to say it's anti-Israel, which indeed it is. Um, and it's, it's certainly the case that they want, in my view, uh, and I think this is proven by what they say and what they do and their insignia and their flags and their materials, they want Israel gone. They don't want two states. They want Israel gone. But it's much worse than that. What they're producing day by day is, is anti-Jewish venom, um, crude, conspiratorial, Jews are uniquely the source of evil in the world. That's what they're producing. That's what they're teaching their children.
uh, to hate. And people in the West just have no idea of this because it is never, ever reported. And so I got into a lot of difficulty because um, <laughs> uh, until the year 2000, I'd never been to Israel, never wanted to go. I thought as a British Jew, I was, you know, it was, it was, it was great, it was fine, it was nothing to do with me. And I'd bought into quite a lot of the stuff that, you know, we've been talking mm. about. Because, you know, if, if you don't know about the Middle East, why would you think any, any different? Um, and um, uh, in, in, in 1982, when I was at The Guardian, um, I was brought up very sharply against the fact that as a British Jew, um, I spoke as a matter of fairness about why there seemed to be a double standard in the reporting of Israel at that time, as opposed to reporting of Syria. Syria at that time um, had murdered or caused to be killed um, between 15 and 40,000 opponents of President Assad, the father of the mm. President Assad. And it was virtually not reported at the Guardian. It was a few paragraphs. It was, it was nothing. Whereas Israel was at war in the Lebanon. And it was a front page story every day. It was furious editorials. It was outrage and op-eds. And I said, why is there a double standard? And that's when I realized the racism of the left. Because I was told, um, of course, there's a double standard. You don't expect us to uh, um, uh, treat the developing world like us. The developing world is not brought up as we are to respect human life. Consequently, we can't judge them by our standards. That's racism. I went, <laughs> what? <laughs> so let, let me get this right. If someone's born into the developing world, they're not entitled to the same rights to life and liberty as we are? Isn't that racism? <laughs> and they said, why are you so upset? We do you the great honor. I became you. Mm. <laughs> like that. Mm. You. We do you the great honor of assuming that you and Israel, and I became Israel, mm. <laughs> um, that you and Israel uh, adhere to the same principles as we do. Respect for human life. So we judge you by our standards. Mm. And what's more, you tell us that you are morally superior to us. So we should judge you by higher standards. And that's when I realized the anti-Semitism of the left and the racism of the left. And that's when I first realized that my naive belief that we were all marching to the same tune, behind the same banner of decency, was not the case. They were on the other side. And then I didn't do any more stuff about any of that for a long time. And then in the year 2000, when the Intifada started, Second Intifada as it was called, something very similar happened. Israelis are being blown to bits in pizza parlors and cafes and um, in on buses in Israel. And um, you know, several thousand were murdered. And from the get-go in Britain, um, Israel was totally condemned for taking condign action to stop it. And as a matter of justice and fairness, I said, what is this? Why are you behaving like this? And everybody went, oh, she's a Jew. She's not properly British. And that was when I realized as a British Jew, you could not support the Jewish people as a people. Not allowed. 
Um, and that's when I realized something was very, very badly wrong uh, with Britain's attitude to Jews, not just to Israel, but to Jews. And that, but those two were bound up together. Uh, because Israel was being presented, not least by the BBC, as basically the fount of all evil in the Middle East. It was an aggressive country. It behaved illegally. All of this, in my view, as I came to believe over many years subsequently, all of it was a lie. But that's what everyone was told. And so consequently, if you were a Jew standing up for all this, then of course you were also evil. Of course you were. And this was a shattering, really shattering set of developments for me. And eventually, kind of long story short, or shorter, I came to put all that together with all the other stuff we're talking about. All the other stuff we're talking about, because it's all to do with, as you said, Constantine, truth and lies. Mm. It's basically what it's about. When you pare it all down, people are telling themselves lies about reality. They're living in a world of fantasy, which they purport, they, 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 they want us to believe is the reality. They tell lies about other people and that they don't realize that they're lies because there's no such thing as a lie anymore. There's no such thing as truth. Everything is a matter of opinion. Everything is a matter of opinion. So you can't ever win an argument. So all these things, it seemed to me, I'm you know, syncopating a lot of stuff. It's a big no. topic. No, it's, it's a big, big topic. topic. I want to ask you something about anti-Semitism because I know you. One of your books deals. One of your recent books deals oh, with that. Glad matter. you mentioned my recent well, books. Actually, I wasn't going to talk about your book just yet. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about uh, Jews in general and. Why is it the Jews? We're not really part of this progressive stack, as they call it. We're not. We're not oppressed in the same oh, way in this oh. view of the world. Oh yes, we're all. You're a woman, therefore you're oppressed yes, more yes, than yes. I am. And we don't do the intersection. Intersectionality somehow does, doesn't um, seem to cover Jews it, for some reason. Even though not. you know, as you mentioned earlier, I think historically, it's certainly one of the most oppressed minorities in the history of humanity. Absolutely, the most persecuted. So why why don't we get the credit? <laughs> and so and we're so tiny. Yes. Um, you know, we're such a tiny number. Um, so I want my oppression points. I want my <laughs> BBC diversity. You know, they, they need a, a Jewish Nazi on the BBC. You, Constantine, you obviously you just don't realize Jews run the world. Ah, yes. <laughs> they run the media. I forgot about that. They run the banks. Mm. They run the law. They run medicine. They're into everything. This is the <laughs> default position. Mm. Jews cannot be victims because Jews are powerful. Mm. Why are they powerful? Because they are behind capitalism. Mm. This is how, this is how, this is how mm. the thinking is. So you have the most persecuted people on earth who are the most powerful people on earth. And this is the thing about anti-Semitism. It simultaneously treats Jews as lower than animals and as the most supernaturally powerful force ever known in the history of mankind. Simultaneously, the most powerful and the most animalistic and useless. Simultaneously, there is no prejudice like it. So I'm afraid that the whole intersectionality thing and the whole anti-Israel thing is based fundamentally on anti-Semitism. Big caveat, that does not mean that people who think Israel is disgusting are necessarily anti-Semites. To me, an anti-Semite, you have, you know, I can't look into people's souls and understand what's motivating them. And it's perfectly possible to believe all the garbage about Israel and, you know, not, not believe that Jews are awful people. Mm. But 
What I'm saying is that the discourse about Israel is fundamentally anti-Jew because there is no other country, people or cause in the world that has ever been subjected to this level of obsessional, hysterical vilification based on entirely on falsehoods and which elevates Israel, just like the Jews have always been elevated in anti-Semitic discourse since time immemorial, as being the world's single most evil or destructive or harmful entity. Exactly the same characteristics that applied to traditional anti-Semitism, which are unique to it, are applied to the treatment of Israel, and it's not a coincidence. Do you think this... Sorry, Francis, yeah. let me just finish the yeah. Jew stuff. <laughs> <laughs> let me finish the Jew stuff. That could be misinterpreted. <laughs> Everything we say can be misinterpreted on the internet. But I just want to finish this thing because uh, Jews are successful by as a group. Uh, comparatively to other groups. I think that is probably fair to say, statistically speaking. And you look at what's happening to Asians in America in terms of Harvard, and I don't know if you've, you've you followed the story. Uh, basically, t very people who have a high SAT score in America uh, are disproportionately Asian, Chinese Americans, yeah, sure. Japanese Americans, mm -hmm. and they get discriminated against yes, yes. in mm -hmm. app applying for mm -hmm. universities. So is it more that just as a successful minority, you don't fit the narrative of uh, intersectionality. Is, is, is that maybe why, why that, that we don't fit the narrative and therefore we're not included in the oppression metrics? Well, but you mentioned, you know, Asians. Mm. They're included. Well, uh, Japanese and Chinese, probably not so much. Not so much, no, but they're not excluded. Um, I mean... They're not given affirmative actions, what I'm saying, right? Uh, in, certainly in American universities, for example. I, I don't know. They're, they're punished, in fact, for being yes, yes, clever, yes, essentially, yes, or well-educated yes, and hard-working. Yes, there is something about that. Um, uh, and with Jews, it's even more so because the, um, the disproportion between the, the, the tiny number of Jewish persons and <laughs> their achievements, you know, yeah. Nobel Prize winners, mm is I think I'm right in saying it's more extreme. The disproportion is more extreme than anyone else. So um, there is more um, uh, um, there is more resentment. Um, I would say it's, I mean, I, w I would say it's resentment. I, w I wouldn't say it's simply that, oh, well, you know, we don't have to look after them. So they're all, they're, they're all right. It's more a resentment because I hear it. I hear it the whole time. You know, Jews are controlling. They're controlling the banks. They're controlling capitalism. They're controlling the media. I hear it the whole time. It's definitely uh, what happens on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Me controlling everything. Right. Go for it. Um, I was... A couple of questions. Number one, do you, would you say that anti-Semitism is on the rise? I have, I have friends who are Jewish and uh, state that and state it openly and state, in particular on the left, that it's become yes. more open and people are actually now feel more liberated to say anti-Semitic things. Definitely. Definitely. I, I, I think, I mean, I, I do get a bit impatient because I think, you know, I've, I've thought this for a long time and it's only really since Jeremy Corbyn came to power uh, in the Labour Party that it's become a thing that's mm. been talked about. Um, if one talked about, tried to talk about anti-Semitism on the left previously, we were, people like me, 
Um, in fact, probably just me, because <laughs> I think I do, I'm not, I can't think of anybody else who was saying it, but mm. um, I was told, you know, you're waving the shroud of uh, the Holocaust to sanitize the crimes of Israel. Excuse me? Um, okay. And that's because the whole business of Israel was always wrapped up in this. Mm. And a lot of it, you know, it, it was very hard to, to separate it out. Um, and then Jeremy Corbyn came on the scene, and then um, the whole thing exploded in the Labour Party as an issue. In the, in, the, in the way that I'm sure that, that you know. And um, uh, as a result of all of that, um, people have felt emboldened because nothing's been done to uh, put these people back behind, under the, underneath their stone. Mm. Um, people have become increasingly emboldened to say stuff which would have been not said so openly just a few years ago. But it's, it's been there, it's been building for a long time. And I believe it's intimately connected uh, with um, Israel and support for the Palestinians. Because if you're supporting people who are in the Palestinians who are saying week in, week out, the Jews control everything, they're the source of evil in the world, they control capitalism, they control the banks, um, they control American foreign policy, then um, why are people so surprised when people in the Labour Party say it? when they're supporting that. I remember when the Iraq war happened, the Iraq war was not exactly uncontroversial. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, um, I remember being told um, it's um, a conspiracy between Tel Aviv and, or uh, Jerusalem, and um, Washington to put our boys at risk. It's completely untrue. But mm. Jewish conspiracy had to be, had to be. And that was openly said, openly said by all kinds of people. And my, <laughs> this is a moment to disclose this, my grandfather was originally Lebanese. Uh, and uh, he was uh, vehemently anti-Israel, in particular very upset with uh, Israel's treatment of Lebanon. Did he not have some, <laughs> some reason to be upset by Israeli behavior? This was when? Uh, this was, well, he, he's passed away now, but this was particularly in the 60s and the 70s and how he, he was talking about how Lebanon was essentially levelled in particular Beirut. Um, I'm not sure about the 60s and 70s, yeah. but um, I remember the 80s, as I say, the 82 yeah. uh, invasion of Lebanon. And that was because it was being used um, as, the, uh, as the base uh, for uh, uh, the PLO. Uh, in order to continue to try and annihilate Israel. Mm. So, um, yes, Lebanon got badly, badly used. Um, but Lebanon, you know, had become, unfortunately, as it still is, um, the landing ground uh, for a genocidal war. And now it's even much, much worse, much, much worse. Mm. There are something like 140, 160, 100, about 140,000 minimum missiles pointing at Israel, embedded in Lebanon, in people's apartments, underneath their apartments, in their apartment blocks. The whole of the population is hostage. So that if Israel wants to stop its own annihilation, it has to flatten Lebanon. That's the situation. Now, whose fault is that? Is that Israel's fault? How would you feel if Britain had one missile pointing at it from Wales. <laughs> it has 140,000 missiles, mm. which can cover the whole of Israel. 
Mm. It's like it's like a missile per sheep and whales. <laughs> Everybody goes, oh well, you know the Israelis. You know, I mean, I mean, after all, what right do the Jews have to that land anyway? I mean, you know, they, they got rid of the indigenous population. Really, really. That's the level of this discussion that mm. goes on the whole time. No one in this country has any idea about what I've just said about the 140,000 missiles. Mm. No one cares. If one were to say, Britain, guess what? 140,000 missiles. Everybody go, well, yes, I know. But I mean, you know, Israel, I mean, really, I mean, mm. if only they just sort of all die. That's the reaction. Mm. And, you know, if there is, heaven forbid, a war, you can imagine what the BBC is going to say. It's all going to kick off when Israel retaliates. Mm. We don't care about the Israelis in shelters, living in shelters as they are in the south now from the missiles from Gaza. Mm. We don't care about that. We don't report that. But mm. when Israel retaliates, ah, that's the story. So there you go, mate. Your granddad didn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> um, Melanie, we're running out of time, unfortunately. So uh, let me ask you a couple of, th of things before we let you go. The first thing is you've, you've made a career of writing, I would say, into the void between what the kind of media establishment says and what people think. I think that's, that's probably a fair observation. And you've written two books recently, which I know you mentioned haven't been reviewed and no one seems to know that they're on sale. So tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that and how that's happened. Well, uh, for reasons which really pass my understanding, um, I find it very difficult to get published in Britain and have done for about 25 years. I was told 25 <laughs> years ago that I was blacklisted by every major publishing house. Mm. Um, you would think that I would sell books. Uh, you think I was quite well known in Britain. Mm. You think the publishers might like to make some money out of me. They're much more interested in stopping me from ever having my ideas published. Anyway, so I've always had difficulty for, you know, getting published. Um, and um, uh, my last two books were published last year by a small publisher in America. Mm. And um, uh, for various reasons, uh, um, uh, these books um, have not been reviewed uh, by any major, by any mainstream uh, publication uh, in Britain. Uh, Partly because no one knows that they exist, and partly because um, one of the ways that people try and um, silence me is by pretending I don't exist. They will not review my books. Um, anyway, um, I say this not out of any self-pity, but just as a matter of fact, mm. that people don't know these books exist. You can't fi find them in the bookshops. Um, uh, they're not on sale here. You can buy them on Amazon. And it's particularly unfortunate because here in Britain, I'm known and people want to stop me from writing, as it were, or being, being, being bought. And in America, people don't know I exist. <laughs> so I kind of fall between the two stools. Yeah. But I did publish, uh, have published last year two books, uh, one of which is a little memoir that I wrote. Um, it's called Guardian Angel, uh, My Journey from Leftism to Sanity. Um, and, <laughs> Not at um, all provocative. <laughs> uh, and um, it's basically what we've been talking about. Mm. It's how I changed from being, you know, the, basically the child and darling of the left to being the she-devil of the Western Hemisphere. Mm. Um, and through the prism of what happened to me and why I reacted in the way I did, and it's, there's quite a lot of personal stuff in it as well, I kind of tell the story, I, I think, of what happened to Britain and the West in my view as a cultural, those sort of things we've been mm. talking about. So that was published last year. And I also published my first novel, um, 
in which I was interested to explore in fiction um, the themes which have preoccupied me for some years, which is basically, again, we've been touching on this, but uh, the novel is about, uh, uh, my, my, my anti-hero in the novel is a British Jew who doesn't want to be a Jew and who um, tries to pretend that he's not what he is because he's embarrassed and ashamed of it and because he doesn't really know anything about it. And through a series of events, he is forced to confront it in a way which it's not actually resolvable because it's a conflict which isn't easily resolved, but he comes to understand that, first of all, there's stuff about his identity that is valuable that he never actually has taken advantage of and he regrets that. And secondly, that he comes to understand, which I believe to be the case, that one's identity is something one can't run away from, that it's, it is what, you are what you are. And if you run away from it, then, then there's either a void or there's some sort of reckoning. So it's to do with fractured identity about a modern British Jew. It's about the uh, persistence, the unique persistence of anti-Semitism. Um, and it's about the pull of history. And it's a small canvas. It's based in Britain today and in modern day America and Israel. And it's also, uh, the plot is also set in medieval Britain and in Holocaust Poland. So a small canvas mm. and small themes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's called The Legacy. They both um, sound fascinating. Yeah. I look and, forward to reading them. Well, thank you. Um, and because, uh, like everyone else, I didn't know they existed until this yeah. very conversation. No, well, it's you know, it's I, at this point I will you know basically get down on the floor and chew the carpet <laughs> uh, quietly while you look the other way. Um, but it's very, very, very annoying because um, the people who have read it, um, I mean, they, you know, there are lots of if you look if you look on Amazon, you'll see lots of lovely people who've written um, very lovely stuff, mm. and they say things like. This is a page turner. I couldn't put it down. And I'm thinking, why can't you tell somebody in the media this? Mm -hmm. um, but they don't. Anyway, um, so no one knows it exists. They exist, but they do exist and they can be bought on Amazon. And it's very good of you to mention them. I'm and trigonometry fans now grateful. do know they exist yeah. and will be no doubt getting the books very soon. But we've got one more question for you, Melanie, before we let you go. Which is always, what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we really should be talking about? <laughs> well, it's a, something which, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've avoided controversy so far in my conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I've touched on the most easy subjects. Yeah. Everyone's we've going to be saying, yeah. we've all agreed with this. Why is this woman controversial? <laughs> so there's one topic which we haven't touched, which is like the killer of killers, which is... Man-made global warming. Boom. Oh, there we go. <laughs> See what I mean? Let's yeah. do it. All right. Quickly. It's a scam. It's a fraud and a hoax. Is the climate not getting warmer, Melanie? The climate changes that are occurring are in no way out of the ordinary in respect of the climate changes, fluctuations over the period of over, over, over history. There is no evidence whatsoever that anything out of the ordinary is happening. Climate goes up, down, blah, blah. This is a very big subject, as yes. you may imagine. Mm. Um, I've written about this since 1988 when it was invented, um, when I realized instantly that it was a fraud. When I say a fraud, I'm speaking loosely. What I really mean is that it's a theory which has been supported into an unchallengeable orthodoxy by a number of factors. First of all, you don't get grant funding as a scientist in these sorts of climate-related areas unless you produce research which basically upholds a theory. 
The second thing is that it's based on a set of, uh, it, it, it's, it's largely based on computer modeling. And as I was told right at the start, uh, climate is one of the most, if not the most, complicated um, set of feedback mechanisms, etc., mm. that has, you know, that, that, that there is in existence. And the com computer modeling simply cannot cope with this. It cannot cope with the, vari the variables that you have to feed in. And so it's almost inevitable that it will not produce something which is true. Um, as a means of trying to estimate the future, forecast the future, it can't do it. Um, and then the third thing is the actual frauds. The actual frauds, um, of which there have been a number, uh, in which scientists have simply falsified the information, which has led to a number of very, very distinguished scientists who have worked for the IPCC as expert reviewers of the evidence to walk out of the IPCC when their own research was being falsified and misrepresented and when the IPCC was basically producing false research. And there's that also. I wrote about this in The World Turn Upside Down, which was published in, was it 2010? I can't remember, something like that. I wrote a chapter because it seemed to me to feed into what we've been talking about, which was the gullibility and credulousness of a society which tells itself that it's operating on the basis of scientific evidence and rationality, but for which this particular issue is to me an example of how that's been turned on its head. Um, and of course, someone like me comes along and says all this and people say, well, she's not even a scientist. And so she's bound to be wrong. And 97% of all scientists basically think that, you know, something terrible is happening. Well, the 97% figure is itself fraudulent. Um, it was based on a, mis a misreading of evidence. And there are hundreds of the most prominent scientists. And I've list I listed some of them in my book. I've listed them in what I've written. Um, they sign petitions. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that there is this penalty on scientists who buck the trend, put it mildly, um, there they are. And yet they're completely ignored, completely ignored. BBC issued an edict. Science cannot be gainsaid. There is no need in the interest of balance, this is the BBC, this is journalism, in the interest of balance, there is no need to have any alternative view, a climate denier, on with a proponent of man-made apocalyptic climate change. Um, so this is, to me, just as we were saying before, this is another, you know, medieval apocalyptic, this really is apocalypse now. It's a medieval apocalyptic belief system which has heretics, it has inquisitions, it has penalties, 
my goodness, it has penalties. I'm just going to clarify now, right? Uh, just to simplify this argument. Are you saying that Greta Thunberg is wrong? Mm -hmm. No, she's saying she's the messiah. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> she's a very naughty little girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to leave it there. It's, uh, the climate change is a thing that we want to get into, and we're going to talk to scientists from both sides. Uh, we wish do. We, we wish no. we had more time to discuss it with you, but unfortunately, our time is up. Melanie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, where can people follow you on Twitter and find out about everything that's going on with you? Ah, well, I have a website, which mm -hmm. is um, easy to remember. It's uh, melaniephillips.com. Uh, on which I post all my work, including blogs and links to my published articles and links to appearances uh, on TV and stuff. Um, on Twitter, my Twitter handle is um, at Melanie Latest. Um, and what else am I on? That's it, I think. We'll post all the links and the links to buy your books in the description mm. of the video on the audio so people can get that. I'm in As your debt. <laughs> no, you, we are very much in yours. As always, follow us at TriggerPod on other social media, and we will see you in a week from now with another brilliant episode. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>